0: The passage on which the sermon is based is Acts chapter twenty. So, after Paul spent time in Greece, he travels to the city of Ephesus, a city in western Turkey, and he ends up spending like nearly two years there, instructing the church. Ephesus was home of one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the, the Grand Temple of Artemis. So here's a picture of it. The picture doesn't do it justice, but the Temple of Artemis, you know, you know the Parthenon in Athens. This was twice that size. So, I mean, it was huge. And there was also this powerful fertility cult associated with Artemis, or the Romans called her Diana, the goddess of fertility. But what ends up happening in the story, Paul's ministry in Ephesus is so effective in turning people away from idolatry that basically it starts cutting into the the local um, temple guild's prophets and so one of the leaders of, the, of that temple guild basically starts a citywide riot and people are shouting for hours, you know, great is Artemis, God of, goddess of the Ephesians, and the whole city is up in an uproar, Paul has to flee in order uh, to, you know, to be saved. And then we come to Acts 20, before he continues on his, on his journey to the city of Jerusalem to care for the struggling Christians there. Uh, famine relief um, Offering he was bringing to them. He takes a moment to bid farewell to the elders of the church of Ephesus and included in Acts 20 Is this like very sincere tender farewell speech where we get to see a side of Paul that we don't typically associate with the man who's running all over the empire starting churches and getting into fights and what, what you see in, the, pa- in the, pis- uh, the vignette is simply how much he loved these people and how devoted he was to their, to their, to their souls and to their flourishing. Um, and so what I want to consider from the passage is a distinctly Christian portrait of leadership. You know, the kind of healthy leadership that would stand in contrast to what we prayed about already. And uh, this is the kind of leadership healthy Christianity should be producing. And I also want to say, sort of a disclaimer, that this isn't uh, a comprehensive treatment of leadership. It's really just one little sliver into the fuller picture. But what we see in it is threefold: a ministry of truth, a ministry of tears, and I think a ministry of accountability. All of which bears the resemblances of Jesus Himself. Acts twenty verse seventeen: From Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. And when they arrived, he said to them, You know how I lived the whole time I was with you. From the first day I came into the province of Asia, I served the Lord with great humility and with tears, and in the midst of severe testing by the plots of my Jewish opponents, you know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. And now, uh, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city, the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardship are facing me. I'll just make one parenthetical statement here, because I cut this out of the end of my sermon, because I thought the sermon would be too long. But notice he's going to Jerusalem, and he knows what's awaiting, what's, what he's going to basically have there, right? Suffering, hardship, potentially death. Uh, Who else set his face resolutely to Jerusalem to face suffering, hardship, and death? so in this, he is very much, he looks like Jesus. Verse 24, however, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is, is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. Now I know that none of, you, uh, n- none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore, I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of any of you, for I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, without with, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years I never stopped warning each of you, night and day with tears. Now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. And everything I did, I showed you by, that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak. Remembering the words the Lord Jesus himself said, these are words that are nowhere recorded in any of the Gospels. It is more blessed blessed to give than to receive And when Paul finished speaking, he knelt down with all of them and prayed. They all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. Number one, a ministry of truth. You know, the word truth, the the capital T, truth, uh, in our culture, obviously, it carries with it a lot of baggage. And maybe because, maybe because we've all been truth-bombed before. We've all experienced a truth-bomb. You know, some well-meaning but insensitive person it just impales us with their critiques of us, you know, all in the name of love or all in the name of tough love. And so, yeah, truth uh, seems seems hard, doesn't it? Capital T truth can it can also carry with it the smugness of condescension, you, the whole, like, I'm right, you're wrong, uh, superiority complex. So when I, I just want to say this at the beginning, when I use the word truth, capital T truth, what, what I want you to think of is truth as it is embodied by Jesus. I mean, the man of truth washed the smelly, stinky feet of the men he led, right? The man of truth was the man who laid down his life for his critics and for the people that hated him, for his enemies. And always remember that the man of truth is the king of the upside-down kingdom, and, you know, that kingdom, it's a kingdom of truth, but the values and priorities of the world in that kingdom are reversed. In that kingdom, the last become first, the weak become strong, um, the humble are exalted. The values of that kingdom are meekness, poverty of spirit, uh, love for enemies, concern for justice, the, the abundance of shalom. And so I just want to say at the beginning, you know, tr- truth must be packaged that way. You know, packaged in the way of Jesus. Now having said that, let's, um, let's notice how Paul describes the ministry of truth to these uh, fellow uh, leaders of the church. Verse 20 he said, I want you to remember how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable. Or verse 27, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Think about that word for a moment, shrink. I mean, to shrink from something, that means like to cower, maybe, to avoid, to fear. To, he says, in, in essence, he's saying, I, I wasn't afraid to have hard conversations with you that were centered around the truth. And, you know, most of us are afraid of that, aren't we? You know, most of us, we shrink from conflict. Um, We fear that if I, you know, confront this other person, it's only going to make things worse. Um, Some of us are just massively conflict-averse. I raise my hand, terribly so. I just feel so uncomfortable when it comes to conflict. And yet, avoiding it, we all know, avoiding it is super unhealthy. I mean, you take your marriage for an example. I mean, if you never talk to your spouse about the things they do that bother you, you shrink from that conversation. I mean, one day what ends up happening? Well, you blow up on them, don't you? And you know, both of you are hurt, and you leave that conversation, yeah, hurt and angry. You no, know, part of the reason that we we end up hurting our, each other in the ways that we do is because we shrink from having hard conversations. I think. It, probably a number of our blow-ups in, in our interpersonal relationships and within the church could be avoided if we if we just didn't shrink and you know, and uh, you know, started to address the underlying tensions that are part of the problem. So, okay, he didn't shrink from having hard conversations centered around the whole counsel of God, he says. Uh, that would be probably his expression for the Bible. And he said, nobody can charge me of not telling you the truth, Um, but ministry of truth absolutely requires trust for it to be effective, and I thought, you know, that's really shown in this passage. How long did Paul spend in Ephesus with these people? Uh, It was like two to three years, Um, and what, two to three years just living with them and talking with them day after day, building trust, Um, he he also said, you know, it was so important to me that you didn't think that I was like a a Pastoral gun for hire that I wouldn't even accept money from you. I wouldn't even take a salary from you I I worked with my own hands. I I did my whole tent making entrepreneurial um, business And day after day we would meet we would we would discuss And um, you know for three years he developed trust with them I think you know this. I know this. We all know this truth without trust does not work on a person-to-person level. It doesn't. And it's one of those, that seems so obvious to me, but isn't it something that people really miss on, like, social media, for instance? (laughs) The the fact that truth without trust, it doesn't work on an interpersonal level, and I got people in my Facebook feed or in other feeds just trying to truth everybody with, you know, making this statement, making that statement, like, seemingly oblivious to the fact that some mediums are simply not conducive to building trust. If anything, the medium itself undermines trust. Trust is crucial. Uh, For me to receive the truth from you, I have to believe the following. At a minimum, I have to believe the following. Number one, trust that you love me. You actually love me and have my best interests at heart. Not that you're trying to use me for your own gain. Number two, trust that you understand whatever situation you're trying to speak into and you're you're willing to, and or you're willing to do the hard work to understand it. Or number three, you know, trust that you're competent to address the situation constructively and helpfully. Like, truth without trust is highly ineffective in interpersonal relationships. And trust, always remember trust is established through consistency. Through the consistency, the match-up between our words our behavior, and our heart. Like, all of those three have to to mesh. I'm not saying anything that you don't already know. Um, If we do any kind of cultural critique right now, we know that we live in a trustless place, a trustless time. Our current political climate has so jaded about public leadership of any kind, we don't trust them. We have a cataclysmic breakdown of trust, Um, not only um, with leaders, political leaders, church leaders. We don't trust institutions. We don't trust the people who lead institutions. And and the church, in many respects, I mean, let's be honest. The church has only herself to blame. Like, we have shot ourselves in the foot and in the head. You know, the church is—there was a Barna survey—I mentioned it in this week's email—that recently came out that says, basically, the public image of the church is such a mess, largely owing to the hypocrisy of its leaders and institutions. Like, we— we have killed people's trust time and again. You know, several of you, um, you know, months ago, you listened to the podcast, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. And I think in that podcast, they played this audio clip from the, the celebrity pastor in that church. And he spoke these words, in a, and I think it was in a sermon, eight years before another megachurch fell apart. And these were those words. I probably should have put them on the screen, but I didn't think to um, do so. But he said this. Do you remember this? He says, I'm a guy who is highly competitive. Every year I want the church to grow. I want my knowledge to grow. I want my influence to grow. I want our staff to grow. I want our church plants to grow. I want everything because I want to win. I don't want to just be where I'm at. I don't don't want anything to be where it's at. And so for me, it is success and drivenness and it's productivity and it's victory that drives me constantly. And okay, that kills trust. (laughs) Um, And it's what we kind of feel like is behind most of the people who stand up in front of us and do the thing that I'm doing with you right now, right? We think that that's behind, that's their motivations. Um, And it's kind of weird that we've just bought into the success, the USA church success, and size, money, political and social influence, um, and we say, you know, that's what we're after, and you either get on the bus, because we're headed that way, or you get run over by the bus. I think he also said that. When 90% of the, of the churches in the world are under 200 people, 90% of the churches in the world probably can't even afford a pastor. Um, I, maybe I'm just rambling at this point. You, you don't—do you get that feeling, though? That that, I want to win at all costs feeling when you read about Jesus, or when you read about Paul? Um, I hope that, you know, we have spent the better part of the last year together, and I really hope that you don't get that feeling with me, <laughs> um, because I don't want to be that guy. But I know the seeds are in every one of our hearts. Great quote. I've got way too many quotes in the sermon today, but love without truth is sentimentality. It supports and affirms us, but keeps us in denial about our flaws. But truth without love is harshness. It gives us information, but it, in such a way that we can't really hear it. But God's saving love in Christ, however, is marked by both radical truthfulness about who we are and yet also radical unconditional commitment to us. See, the merciful commitment strengthens us to see the truth about ourselves and repent. The conviction and repentance moves us to cling to and, God, and rest in God's mercy and grace. That's the ministry of truth right there. Number two, ministry of tears, or you can say the ministry uh, of friendship, and the Greek word for that is Philadelphia, brotherly love. Going back to the passage, did you notice just how much, how emotional these guys were? They, They don't fit what I would typically think of as like you know, the, the John Wayne masculine man kind of picture. I mean, they embrace and they kiss and they cry together. And Paul says in verse 18, like, I was emotionally vulnerable with you. He says, you yourselves know, like how I lived among you the whole time from the first day I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with humility and tears. He says, there was plenty of tears. Um, the weeping Paul, <laughs> plenty of tears as I open my heart to you. And I think that's good leadership. I really do. It may surprise you that not, that not everybody believes that. Um, you know, some seminary professors, when they're training students to become pastors, they tell them like, "Don't make close relationships with the people in your church." And I even know staffs that uh, that tell their churches that that tell their staff members kind of the same thing. Like, "Don't watch out, church friendships are messy. It's just going to complicate the pastor-parishioner dynamic." Um, don't sort of give your heart away because, you know, it's going to just get you crushed. That's not the way that Paul led. And it's not the way that Jesus led because it's not the way of love, is it? It's not the way of love. Remember the words of C.S. Lewis? I mean, these are beautiful and they're also so challenging. Like, love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Just wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the, caske- in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. You know, for to love, to love anyone, to love anything, is to be vulnerable. The older you get, the more you realize how often people will, you know, treat you badly, let you down, disappoint you, hurt you, even traumatize you. And institutions, the, the older you get, the more you realize how institutions are going to fail you in almost all those same ways because, last I checked, institutions are led by, you guessed it, people. <laughs> and so what do we do? We just, we do, we, 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 treat, we retreat into that little coffin, that casket, um, where it's safe and dark and motionless and airless. Like very rarely do we say that's what we're doing. We don't go out and broadcast to the world, I'm not going to need people anymore. But we start to pull back um, from groups of people. We're unwilling to start new relationships because this other thing feels safer. Every other kind of love, besides friend love, it will push itself on you. Like romantic love, for instance, it will be pushed on you by your hormones. Family love will be pushed on you by your family relations citizenship love will be pushed on you by your country, but nobody will force friendship on you because there is no biological or sociological necessity for friendship, which means you have to choose to pursue it. You have to commit to pursue it. You have to commit to share your time, your life, your heart with someone just like Paul, just like Jesus. Isn't it a remarkable that Jesus Christ was the one man who walked the face of the earth, who lived in perpetual communion with the Father, and he still needed a community of friends to kind of get through this life, <laughs> uh, and that's how, that's how he lived, and that's how he led. I mean, he spent virtually every day with um, those guys, and Mary, and Martha, and Mary Magdalene, you know, eating, and serving, and self-disclosing, um, even more deeply, even more deeply with that inner circle of three, Peter, James, and um, and John. Those people let him down, of course, but he didn't withdraw, and I get it. We live in, you know, this is the summer of 2023 in South Scottsdale, Arizona, and we're not going to be able to like, recreate the nomadic life of an itinerant first-century Jewish preacher, and like the way we have structured our whole civilization really doesn't lead all that well to having a lot of time for other people and other friends, Um, but we need it. And I need more friendships in this room with you. (laughs) I do, if I'm going to lead you well. How do you know that you've got a good friendship started? This was somebody suggested to me. There's mutual enjoyment, like both people really enjoy being together, and what we do together is not as important as what we are together. That's number one. Number two, respect. Like you, you, you genuinely respect each other, like you, you can 't make another person feel important if you secretly feel he or she is a nobody you can 't and you can 't really speak have another person speak into your life if you don 't respect them and then number three you 've got a solid footing of of common ground. What is our, our common footing? I mean I hope our common footing is jesus our our common footing. grace, but even more fundamentally, Acts 20 verse 35, in everything I did, Paul says, I showed you that by uh, this hard work, we must help the weak, remembering the words the Lord Jesus himself said, is more blessed to give than to receive, like that also becomes part of the common footing that we have as Christians, that we we take on a a shared commitment and task toward helping the weak, and, and to experiencing the blessing of giving, um, even before receiving. You may have seen the movie or read the book Just Mercy by uh, Bryan Stevenson. It's the memoir from um, Stevenson's career as an African-American attorney um, of one who was working with poor clients, mostly who are on death row. How many of you have read it? Dave's had the book on the back table for us before. It's it's so powerful. And the men that he advocates for on death row, of course, they've committed uh, heinous, violent, you know, terrible crimes. And year after year, he keeps, you know, going for them, you know, advocating for them. Even when the card seems so stacked against him and his clients, how does he do it? What, what pushes him to, to keep on that path? He says, I do what I do, well, because I'm weak and I'm broken too. And he says this, we are all broken by something. We all, have, we all hurt someone and have been hurt. We all share the condition of brokenness, even if our brokenness is not equivalent. You know, I desperately wanted mercy for a client, but I couldn't pretend that his struggle was disconnected from my own. Our shared brokenness connected us. Our brokenness is also the source of our common humanity, the basis for our shared search for comfort, meaning, and healing, Our shared vulnerability and imperfection nurtures and sustains our capacity for compassion. Such a great quote. I would just say, our brokenness is the source of our common humanity, and our shared vulnerability and imperfection nurtures and sustains our capacity for friendship, too. It does. And it can catalyze us then to serve others in their brokenness. Finally, so Ministry of Truth, Ministry of Tears, and number three, Uh, a ministry of accountability. In Christianity, we've got all these different kinds of church government uh, formats set up, and our church happens to be within the umbrella of um, the Presbyterian form of church government. And so we love this passage because there are elders, and the word for elder is presbyteros, from which we get the word Presbyterian. Uh, Our tribe loves this passage because it clearly highlights that leadership um, isn't given to one person because we don't trust a single individual with too much power. Leadership in the Church of Ephesus was given to a plurality of elders. And then we think that's a really good thing because power affects everyone badly. It does. And it can affect religious people especially badly because you know, we can use um, authoritarian behaviors in the name of God and in the name of religion, and we can excuse that kind of a behavior under the screen of our own piety. Um, so yeah, our tribe loves you know, any time the word elders shows up in the New Testament. Unlike you, I have such an aversion towards uh, authoritarianism. And I look out on our culture right now, and I worry very much of um, authoritarian figures. You, you know, don't you, the, the, the way that uh, authoritarian figures rise up in a society, what, 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 is it, what is the catalyst for that? It's fear. Absolutely. It's fear. Um, when situations are unstable, when people are afraid of what's, what's out there, what's going to happen, when they're afraid of threats that are known and unknown, authoritarian people are always there to fill the vacuum. And the same thing happens in churches too. Like, like when we have, when we're afraid and we're directionless and that guy stands up and he just like, he knows the answers and he's so charismatic and he's so gifted, um, he'll just fill the vacuum. And that's how we end up getting bullies for pastors. Because people, when they're afraid, they want someone who has the answers, all the answers. And normally that's packaged in a strong and, and charismatic personality. So, traditionally, the argument goes that Presbyterianism is good because that serves as a check and balance to curtail authoritarian powers. Like, you, you can't get a, a, a bully as a pastor in Presbyterianism because we have elders protecting everyone else. Um, does that work? <laughs> you know, sadly, it doesn't. I mean, I, make, I joke about it. I laugh about it. It's really no laughing matter. Um, You know, we've seen a number of instances in our own denomination, uh, terrible instances, where elders mistreat women, or where you have a a bully pastor, but the elders function kind of like a good old boy network, and they turn a blind eye and excuse domineering um, pastors, and it can create an environment where half the church, women, who actually are more than half the (laughs) church nowadays, they don't feel safe, they don't feel loved, and, and so... Acts twenty verses twenty nine through thirty. Paul was predicting this problem. He says, "I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number of men will arise, and um, I'm sorry, in your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw disciples after them." Like in other words, he's predicting leaders can become wolves, and they do. Yes, we, we, I think we do need a plurality of elders. I think it's biblical. I believe in that. Um, and we need good men to stand up and to address that. But you've heard me say this before, and I'm going to uh, say it again right now. I, we also need good women. <laughs> we, need, we need women, too. We need women in leadership. We need women in the room, like assisting in, in every way possible, assisting with the pastoral care, providing their perspective, which is Different than a man's perspective, sometimes um, we need we need a wide range of people in the elders' room, whatever that thing is, in order to be a healthy safeguard safeguard against you know the, this wicked seed that is that's there. And so that's one of the reasons why I have said my my vision for our church is that yes, we will have shepherds, elders. But we'll also select from our body shepherdesses, godly mature women who um, are involved in, you know, the process of leading and caring for this congregation. And deacons and deaconesses um, uh, because, well, because at a minimum, it'll help us with accountability. It'll help us uh, be healthier. I'm just convinced if that's something new to you, you haven't heard me mention it before, it sets off red flags for you, um, then you know. Let's have a further conversation. I would, I'd love to have a conversation. I'm out of time. Takeaways: pray for me to be a better shepherd. <laughs> I, I, I just feel keenly my own inadequacy of church planting and being a pastor and shepherd to you. Please. Pray that I would become more a shepherd like Jesus. Um, I, w- I also want to know you better. I really do. I feel disconnected, especially in summer when we don't see each other very much and, and we don't get together nearly as much. So if you have any desire whatsoever, men man or woman, to go and have coffee or lunch or go for a walk and talk, like that, is, that is balm to my soul. Um, please let me know. We need to build trust uh, among, among all of us, and we need to pray, and we will in just a minute, that God would just give us some healthy shepherds and shepherdesses and deacons and deaconesses, and not only us, but churches all around this city, so that people would be led by people who have, you know, the heart and countenance of Jesus himself. Amen? A- amen to that. All right.